The Bob Murphy Show, episode 122. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everyone welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show today i'm going to be talking with alexander salter who was my colleague back when I was at the Free Market Institute of Texas Tech. So his official bio, I'll just read portions of it, says Alexander Salter is Comparative Economics Research Fellow at the Free Market Institute and an Assistant Professor of Economics in the Jerry S. Rawls College of Business Administration at Texas Tech University. He earned his BA in Economics from Occidental College, his MA and PhD from George Mason University. And before Texas Tech, he was an Assistant Professor of Economics at Berry College. So, uh... Among his other claims to fame, Alex is just an absolute machine. Um, he's already published more than 70 academic articles, and he's still quite young, more than 90 popular articles. He's also a senior fellow with AIER's Sound Money Project, and he's associate editor of the Journal of Private Enterprise. So what we're talking about in this episode is, um, I don't know if all of you people would have heard of it, but among academic libertarian types, there's this big thing lately about state capacity. And in the economics literature, that's a big hot topic in the development literature. And so I saw Alex and his co-author, Vincent Geloso, had a pushback against that to try to say, wait a minute, there's uh, some more things involved here. It's more nuanced. And I wanted to bring him on to talk about that. You'll see it's pretty interesting. And then after that, we talk about, he has a different article talking about uh, for conservatives and, and why anarchism is actually the correct position for a true conservative to have, which might surprise you when you hear what Alex says about state capacity. One last tidbit, folks. After Alex and I had finished talking for the interview, we were chit-chatting and he was mentioning how he had been writing stuff lately about the extraordinary new powers that the Fed had been adopting. And uh, and he said something along the lines of, and Bob, you're one of the few people that's been writing on this. And I thought, geez, I wish you know you had said that during the interview. I'd like to get those, uh, get those compliments. So since we didn't talk about it during the interview itself, though, I will link in the show notes page to Alex's recent stuff documenting the expansion of powers that the Federal Reserve has grabbed under the guise of the, of the panic caused by the coronavirus. So for all that stuff, of course, you go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 122. And now, without further ado, here is my conversation with Alex Salter. Alex, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Thanks, Bob. It's great to be here. And uh, from everyone in Lubbock, let me say we miss you. Oh, thanks, guys. Yeah, I, I miss the uh, the academic rigor as well. And uh, <laughs> I was thinking about this the other day. My regret besides, you know, not publishing as much as I had hoped for, you know, at the beginning of the year, you, you jot down all your paper ideas. Besides that, though, is I still wish we had had the students, you know, the, the grad students versus the faculty basketball game, because I still think we would have won and they would have been surprised. But that was the great unresolved uh, unresolved tension in free market institute history. Yeah, it was a missed opportunity. <laughs> we'll go down. People will be it's sort of like, you know, could Ali have beaten Tyson? You know, that kind of a thing. That'll, that'll be basically what this is. There you go. All right. So the reason I have you on right now is I saw, actually at this point, it was a while ago, but then we each had scheduling stuff come up. But you back in January 14th, 2020, you had an article with, Vincent Geloso on the title is State Capacity, Economic Growth, and Reverse Causality. And I really like this, not just because I agreed with you, what you were doing with it, but also just you know the type of argument it was. I thought it was an interesting twist. So before we dive into that, though, this term state capacity is something that I know I started hearing a lot of when I was at Texas Tech, like, like among academics. So can you explain what, what does that mean and like what, what is that literature now? Like what, what does that mean, like the state capacity literature? Sure. So the state capacity literature is really a group of academic literatures, largely in the field of development economics and political economy. And it's kind of a hot topic right now. It's what 
a lot of the most prominent scholars are researching. It's probably the most prominent conversation surrounding the long-term wealth and poverty of nations. Uh, what the idea of state capacity refers to is, well, actually, you can you can talk well, about it. Can I, can I stop ways. you? I don't sure. mean to, but just because I'm not even sure exactly. So if you had asked me a minute ago in the development literature, like what's the new thing? I would have said, oh, if they're finally like understanding the importance of institutions. So is this just one like specific feature in that what I just said, or is this a different thing now? No, I think that's right. I think that this is a specific continuation of the recognition of the importance of institutions. Okay. So right around 2000, you have people sort of broadly accepting the idea that institutions are the fundamental source of long-run growth. We came to a more or less coherent agreement on what constitutes good institutions, or at least what we want them to do. Then the research question became, that's all well and good, but how do you get good institutions? So state capacity is the latest answer to that question of how you get and keep good institutions. And in terms of a definition, you can talk about state capacity in terms of what you want formal governance organizations to do. Usually, if you're talking to a state capacity scholar, they'll say something like, a state has high state capacity if it can efficiently raise taxes maintain it, maintain a uniform rule of law, and provide public goods. So that's in terms of what the state does, or at least has the ability to do. But you can also talk about it in terms of like the actual structure of the state. And I think that most people who are advocates of the idea of state capacity would be comfortable with saying a state has high state capacity if it's centralized, hierarchical, and coherent. So it's not super decentralized. It's not characterized by a bunch of petty warlords constantly squabbling with each other a relatively coherent, hierarchical, centralized decision-making procedure. And so in that sense, it's sort of uh, an advancement on the the Weberian concept of a state as the organization that has a monopoly on the use of force. It's not quite the same, but I think it's it's in the same path. Okay, so maybe first, can you just give some emblematic example or paradigmatic examples of like what are states that are high capacity and states that are low capacity, just so the listener has an idea of real-world examples? So if you look at pretty much any developed country, what you'll notice is that they all have pretty big governments. Governments represent a pretty large share of total economic output. They're fairly, again, centralized, coherent, hierarchical. Uh, If you look at countries that are stuck in poverty, what you'll frequently see is that the state is absent or so weak that it can't do anything. And so when we that's sort of the starting stylized fact behind the state capacity literatures. It's not just the case that states that promote economic development do like a very, very small number of things, they're actually all in very wealthy countries, pretty big players politically, of course, and economically. And so that's sort of the, that's sort of the puzzle, right? You would typically think that if a state is big, you might be worried about government predation. And yet you typically have these governments that consume 40% plus of the national product, and yet the countries are wealthy and prosperous. So what explains that? Uh, the state capacity literature is sort of focused on on squaring that circle, so to speak. Okay. Yeah. So before we get into the particular, I know that you're sort of anticipating a little bit where you and Vincent are going to do in your article, but just so we, the listener gets the the concept and the terminology, state capacity is not synonymous with large state, right? Correct. It is not necessarily synonymous with large states. You could have a state that has very high state capacity that does not necessarily consume a large share of the national product. For example, for example the, U- the U.S. federal government in 1926, would that be considered a high capacity state? Because they had relatively low yes. taxes, but they, they had the ability. Right. Know, they showed during World War One they could take a lot of tax revenue, but. Correct. Okay. So one of the problems, this is anticipating again a little bit, but one of the difficulties this literature has is the same as the literature on institutions more generally which is it's never really it's never as clear as we would like whether we're talking about procedures or outcomes. Mm-hmm. So the question is, so if a state is not currently doing a lot of those things but has the ability to do those things, is it a high capacity state? Most researchers would say yes. So getting back to your example of the United States back when uh, governments at all levels only consume something like 10% of the national product, that was still a high state capacity state. Mm-hmm. Because as you talked about, it was very uh, quickly able to transition to a wartime footing uh, in World War One. It was still able to provide legal infrastructure. It was able to raise taxes with a minimal excess burden. It was capable of doing all the things that conditional upon the existence of a state, 
we would want it to do to promote the, the wealth of nations. Okay, so what would be an example right now of, like, is North Korea a high-capacity state or not? That's the question. So that's one of the, that question actually gets at the heart of one of my issues mm-hmm. with the idea of state capacity. If you look at states that have been highly tyrannical and predatory throughout their history, North Korea today, the Soviet Union today, it's very clear that they had a lot of ability to do things. They fit all the definitions of state capacity. They're hierarchical, they were centralized, they were coherent. They just used it to do really, really bad things. So if you want to put forth state capacity as the fundamental cause of good institutions, on the one hand, it allows you to explain things like the developed West, but on the other hand, you seem to lose the explanatory power of saying, hey, what's up with North Korea? Or, hey, what was up with the Soviet Union? They had capacity up the wazoo, and yet it seems to be, if anything, holding them back rather than actively promoting development. So in my view, this is something Mm -hmm. that people who really are all in on the idea of state capacity don't really have a good answer for. Okay, but if you ask them just yes or no, or I guess they could elaborate and give their reasons, like is is North Korea considered high, would they say that's high capacity or not? Some say yes, some say no. That's the tricky part. If you're defining it based on procedures, you would have to say yes. If you're defining it based on outcomes, you would have to say no. And of course, the problem with defining it based on outcomes is I mean, you're sampling on the dependent variable, right? right. You're sort of including everything that you like and excluding everything that okay. you dislike. And and the problem there, too, is it's not that the reason some would say yes and some would say no is because it's a borderline case. I mean, whatever North Korea is, it's a lot of that. Yes. And so it should either be super high capacity or super low capacity, but it shouldn't be yeah. half, half the scholars. Super high one, or yeah. super low, but either way, it's a basket case, right? Okay. It's a good way of putting it. Okay. And so, yeah, I guess that we are putting our finger. So maybe one that there would be more unanimity, something like, um, well, look, you tell me, like, what's what's a a classic example of a, like Somalia, is that a very low capacity? Right. That's the, that is the quintessential low state capacity, okay. no state capacity, really country. Okay. Uh, we're of course all familiar with the, you know, if you like Liberty so much, why don't you go to Somalia? Right. That objection, uh, facile as it is, nonetheless captures the fact that Somalia as a state has low to non-existent capacity, Okay, which and is we- one of the reasons it's, uh, it still is and remains poor, according to advocates of the concept. And would they also say something like maybe, I don't know, I don't know how much they tax, but like the Colombian, the country of Colombian government, like the fact that they can't, I don't know if this is still true, but back in the day, I know like there were certain areas of the country that like the drug cartels just controlled, like the military couldn't even go in there. Yeah, I still, I still think that that's the case. Okay. And so a lot of a lot of Latin American countries where the central government de facto has no authority and drug cartels and or gangs are doing the governing mm-hmm. uh, for all intents and purposes, those would be weak states, low state capacity states. Okay, great. Okay, so just so people get to get what the concept is. All right, fine. Okay, so now I guess the the news hook for what your guy's article was is that Tyler Cowen had a piece, I don't know if it was in January or in December when he did it. This is the blog post, State yes. Capacity Libertarianism? Yeah, so so Tyler, their you know, big blog amongst uh, some libertarian readers, marginalrevolution.com, he had a post, I guess this was, this was in January. Of course, folks, we'll link to all this stuff. It's bobmurphyshow.com slash 122, uh, where, yeah, he, he just makes the case that for what he called, what, uh, State Capacity Libertarianism? That's right. And loosely put, his, his thesis was libertarians should stop being anti-state per se. They should rather be for, you know, well-run states or something like, you know, then there's a lot of good things that states can do, like have an efficient public school system, build roads, rule of law, blah, blah, blah. And, and again, not only is that not antithetical to liberty, but in fact, you know, that if, if you're someone who really cares about liberty, you should be in favor of common sense reforms that make government work better. You know, I'm, I'm putting words in his mouth, but that's, that's kind of what he was saying. I think that's a fair summary. Yeah. Okay. So I don't know if you want to like react to that, his thesis directly, or if you just want to use that as a springboard, but at this point, you know, it's, I think the, the listeners now have enough of a foundation to understand the sort of subtle arguments that you and uh, Vincent were making in your piece. I'm okay. Starting with uh, talking about Tyler's argument for a little bit. Okay. So I think that there's a way of interpreting it that makes perfect sense. And then there's a way of interpreting it that I don't think makes a whole lot of sense. And I would really push back against the reasonable case 
or at least the case that I would say is reasonable, is more or less how you described it. To the extent that the state is going to be involved in doing things, we would rather the state do them well rather than do them poorly. When you phrase it that way, it's, it's so reasonable that you can't possibly conceive of who would agree. Uh, the problem that I would have is, what if it's in the nature of the state that it's only able to do well by doing a little bit? Right? We're sort of just assuming that we can expand the state's activities, and then separately from that, they can do it well or they can do it poorly. Mm-hmm. Whereas my conception would be it's in the nature of politics that when these things get too big, they necessarily go bad. And this is why I think that the idea of state capacity libertarianism, if taken seriously to its logical conclusion, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So we can distinguish between the things that we want the state to do and that we're afraid of the state doing. To use James Buchanan's famous typology, we like the protective and the productive state, but we don't like the predatory state. So we want our institutions of governance, whatever they look like, to protect private property rights, maintain the rule of law, provide maybe some basic common interest goods or public goods. And then we also don't want our governance institutions to sort of devolve into factional rent-seeking. We don't want the apparatus of governance to be seized by one coalition to steal from or loot another coalition, because that's when things really start to go off the rails. So if the question becomes, how do we make sure the state does only those productive things? The most straightforward answer is to restrict its functions, to not let it get too big. Mm-hmm. And so if we if we uncritically accept the idea that whether the state does something well or poorly is analytically separable from its size, then I think we get into trouble. Right. Mm-hmm. So just because a thing is conceptually separable does not mean that when we get into the actual rough and tumble of politics, that they are separable. Mm-hmm. Yes, we can think about big states or small states on the one hand, and we can think about effective states versus ineffective states on the other hand. But the whole point of libertarianism, at least the consequentialist strains of libertarianism, is that you cannot have a state that is both really, really big and effective. It's the nature of these things that they go off the rails when you try and ask it to do too much. That's not the state's comparative advantage. And so if you're putting up like the two by two matrix where the columns are big or small and the rows are effective or ineffective state, we're all pretending like that there can be lots of entries in the big slash effective state part of the matrix. But I think we need to take seriously what if the number of entries in that corner of the matrix are small or what if it's a null set? Mm -hmm. That would be the most most natural rejoinder. Okay, here. So let me read this a paragraph from this article, from your guy's article. And I mean, I'm sort of, it's going to codify what you just said. So you guys said, but while it doesn't make much sense to claim state capacity causes development, it makes much more sense to claim development causes state capacity. And so you had earlier claimed that the causality that Tyler had been positing that the good state capacity leads to, you know, economic development. So, hey, libertarian should support it. You guys were saying, if anything, the causality is the other way around. Right. And then to continue with your paragraph here. There are many poor countries whose governments have limited capacities and many rich countries with strong capacities. So that was presumably what made Tyler think, oh, yeah, the strong capacity leads to, you know, rich country. Countries in those categories easily come to mind. We can also come up with countries with strong capacities in low development, such as the USSR and Cuba. However, no one can come up with examples of rich countries with weak states. So just to paraphrase you, your argument up to now, you're saying – there's examples of poor countries with weak states and rich countries with strong states. And hence, that's why Tyler thinks the strong state, you know, causes the, de- the economic development. And we can also, though, come up with examples of strong states with bad economies like the USSR and Cuba mm-hmm. and, and North Korea. And so yeah. that's so that's why we should say, hang on a second. Wait a minute. It can't be such a simple, you know, big, powerful state. Therefore, economic development, because otherwise, why are these, these cases exist? But you're saying what we don't have is a case of a country with, you know, a, a very weak state and super high standard of living. And now right. continue. Here's a couple more sentences. Why? There are many historical cases of weak states. They're often cited in the literature on the economics of anarchy and statelessness. They rarely persist for any extended length of time they tend to meet their end either in conquest and subjugation or they build up strong states to resist conquest and subjugation. So I'll stop reading the quotation there. So again, maybe just to paraphrase for the listeners, 
so your your point is that you think you can sort of we can figure out what's causing what because if it really were you know strong states causing economic development you would you wouldn't expect to see case counterexamples like the USSR and Cuba and North Korea but why are you guys so interested in the fact that hey there seems to be like this missing category like or like you said the 2 by 2 matrix one of the right. quadrants is is virtually empty why is that and it's not because we don't have examples of very small states we do Mm-hmm. Like David Friedman and you know other people have studied, and you know our friend Ben Powell has done work on the Somalia question. Sure, to see. Sure. So, so the, okay. So go go ahead. You take it from there. Why, why is that for this question? Why is that the lack of such bountiful examples so relevant? So we focused on that missing entry in the matrix, so to speak, simply because, like you noted. Uh, we can put a bunch of countries in the other three parts of the matrix. And yet here we have this curious case where we're sort of left with nothing. And that's something that sort of cries out for an explanation. And so what we do, Vincent and I, both in our paper and in our AIER article, is argue that that missing cell is kind of like the dog that didn't bark in the night. That can actually tell us a lot about the direction of causality if we think about it. So... The argument that we make in brief is that there's a trade-off between people who want to acquire wealth if you want to get it through production or predation. Right? If you want stuff to consume, because consuming is nice and fun and we all like to do more of it, you can make stuff for yourself or trade with other people, which is largely the same thing, or you can take it from other people. And the argument that we use is once the society gets near its production possibilities frontier, once it's basically using its land, labor, and capital and technology as effectively as possible, it gets really, really hard to get more wealth through production. And so that's going to be the point at which, at the margin, predation might make a little more sense from just a narrowly self-interested perspective if you want to get more wealth. And so this gets into a lot of the, the stuff that Jack Hirschleifer did in the early 2000s with like the microeconomics of conflict and what determines uh, trade versus raid decision. That was later on. But that's also a literature that we engage in And so historically, if we look at what's going on, we can't separate the fact that political elites engaged in the projects whose goal was to build state capacity for the purposes of either stealing from their neighbors or stopping their neighbors from stealing from them. When you get into all the work on the fiscal military state that was done by fiscal sociologists and historians – Uh, in the last quarter of the 20th century, which is also something that influences the literature on state capacity today, it's pretty clear what was driving the the process of state formation and growth, at least in Northwestern Europe. It was about warfare, right? It was about taking stuff from the neighboring kingdom or state or whatever, or stopping them from taking your stuff. So the question then becomes, if you're a relatively wealthy place, but you don't yet have a strong, centralized, coherent state that's capable of mobilizing great amounts of resources to fight a war, what's going to happen to you? Everyone else around you is building state capacity. So your choice is don't build state capacity, in which case you're going to get conquered, or you can get in the game, so to speak. So when we look at why state capacity was actually being built, why states were constructed, It's not this project of providing public goods, providing a uniform code of law, all that stuff. It's about warfare, right? And to the extent that economic growth results from that, that's entirely epiphenomenal. So if you look at the reasons for what's going on, it's really an arms race, right? If you look at the economics of arms races, the only reason that you're trying to get a bigger, better gun is because the guy next to you has a bigger, better gun. But you could all be better off if some process could stop you both from getting in this arms race, right? All those resources that you invest in warfare technologies could be put to actual productive uses that help us consume more. And so when you look at that historical process, the answer becomes pretty clear. It's not that state capacity causally supports economic development. It's that societies that were getting wealthy wanted to maintain their continued existence and independence And so built states partly as a defensive project to make sure that they wouldn't get conquered, but then also partly because, yeah, we want to take your stuff. We want to go and go and take your consumptive goods. So, okay. So you're saying if that story is correct, it's number one that you think that explains the way the matrix is is populated with historical examples. Right. To use economists speak, rich societies with low state capacity are not a stable equilibrium. They either get conquered, in which case they're no longer a society, they're part of some other group, 
or they build states and maintain their independence, in which case they're no longer low state capacity. So the natural tendency is to drift to one of the other four corners of the matrix. And that's why you don't see rich countries with low state capacity. It's not because you need state capacity to get rich. It's because you need state capacity to enjoy the fruits of your labor and capital and technology and all that stuff. It's a survivability condition. We'll put it that way. Okay, good. Because yeah, you're what you just you're anticipating there. My follow up. I was going to say just plain devil's advocate. Couldn't Tyler or people who like his thesis just say, well, right by rule of law, you know that that's kind of what we meant that the state, you know, you need to have a strong state to provide, just like you know to have a court system so that wage contracts get enforced and consumers can trust businesses and blah blah blah. Otherwise, you can't have big GDP growth. Likewise, mm-hmm. yeah, you can't get conquered by a neighboring army. And so that, yeah, that's part of what we mean when we say you need a strong state to provide the foundations for economic growth. So the way you would, would answer that is to say, well, no, you actually could have the economic growth first, and then it's just you need the army as an afterthought to make sure no one takes it from you? Yeah, so I'm glad that you brought up Ben Powell's research, David Friedman's research, sort of the, the body of work on what you would call analytic anarchism. Mm-hmm. So my co-author, Vincent, uh, who was absolutely great on this project, he's done a lot of work on uh, French Canada and places in French Canada that had weak states, but nonetheless were close to the global production possibilities frontier, just basically means that they're more or less as wealthy as a bunch of other places, despite the fact that they didn't have a strong centralized state. And so the literature on analytic anarchy, you might say, suggests that you can get a very impressive amount of division of labor, economic coordination, production without a centralized state. What you can't get is A, the capacity to steal other people's stuff, or B, conditional upon another centralized state wanting to steal your stuff. It's really, really hard to resist that without a state. So it's absolutely not the case that you can't get rich. Uh, It's not the case that you cannot get rich. That's right, without a state. Again, it's about what enables us to explain the filtering mechanism for why we don't observe any entries in this quadrant. Okay, so to paraphrase, you're saying, given that the causality one's what run, bleh, runs one way or the other, clearly it can't be that high state capacity causes economic growth, period, because otherwise you wouldn't see all these examples of big states with bad economies. And then also you're saying you can have you know high economic growth without state. So it's not even, your, your point is, it's not even that it's a necessary but insufficient condition to have a high state and economic growth. There's lots of examples of work done both theoretically and empirically about, oh yeah, this, these group of people here, look at, they had impressive growth, you know, given the technology, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Given the constraints. Right. Despite the lack of a centralized government and so on, but they don't stick around in the historical record for us to then every once in a while, just take a snapshot of the world and look at all the different examples of states and, their, and the relative, you know, their, their attributes because they would, they would either die off or they would change. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. What we're really looking at is a classic case of survivorship bias. Mm-hmm. And so to make, the, to make the very long story as short as possible, if you embrace the story that state capacity causes economic growth, then you have to explain these really troublesome things like Cuba and the Soviet Union and North Korea, because those are clearly counterexamples to the argument. If instead you embrace a reverse causality story like Vincent and I do, we can explain all that stuff and we can explain why that one section of the matrix is empty. Mm-hmm. Right? So we can explain all the stuff that the quote unquote orthodox state capacity literature can explain and we can explain the troublesome things that they can't explain in a way that's more consistent with this other body of work on self-governance, on the division of labor and economic coordination and absence of a state. Yeah, let me just read. I really think it's the stronger explanation. Yeah, okay, great. Let me just read, because there was one last quote from your article that I wanted to read, and so you kind of just anticipated it, but it's it's an important point and it won't, the listener won't mind having us say it again. So you say, you're talking about in terms of the empirical research and the implications for your argument of reverse causality. And so you say, the first implication is that empirical studies of state capacity and its impact on growth suffer from selection bias. Only the societies that successfully built up state capacity end up in the sample of countries' national economic performance. So can you just, again, I know you're just thinking, I just talked about this, but go go ahead and just 
so explain that again. Like, what do you mean about this point about selection bias? Because b- yeah, by sure the way, I, I think that's a great, just in general, when people are doing research and empirical stuff, and then there's this, you know, t- a selection bias issue, like, I think it's good just to identify it. Right. So especially with historical work, assessing causality can be really, really tricky precisely because as time unfolds, right, what's actually in your sample changes a lot. You don't have a, uh, a constant sample of countries and institutions and et cetera. All these things are always changing. Well, why are they changing? Talking about the development and growth of states, conquest and subjugation simply has to be part of the story. So if a polity gets conquered, right, that doesn't tell you that they weren't rich. All that tells you is that they couldn't resist being conquered. Right? To the extent that you're making a claim about state capacity causing economic growth, fine, but that's a very, very different claim. Right? You would expect there to be different things in the sample. So when you're doing historical work like this, you have to be very, very careful about the fact that when the snapshot moves from, okay, now we're looking at Europe during the high Middle Ages. Now we're looking at Europe during early modernity. Now we're looking at Europe during late modernity, et cetera, et cetera. What you're actually looking at in terms of what uh, comprises the sample is going to look radically different depending on which actual societies, political entities manage to survive or not. And again, it's the case that the ones that manage to survive are the ones that have a comparative advantage at marshalling their economies and productive resources towards violence. But we know that violence isn't economically productive. The best it can do is let you enjoy the fruits of economic productivity without someone else conquering you or stealing from you. At best, that's an indirect mechanism, and it's very, very different than all these people in the literature who were asserting and continue to assert that there's a direct primary causal link between state capacity and uh, economic economic well-being. Okay, so then what's your big picture takeaway from this stuff? Is it something like, uh, well, I won't put words in your mouth, but so how does that affect, you know, Tyler's argument or just in general, the people who are arguing, oh yeah, the, the way, you know, we, we got to have, let's focus on reforming and, and getting good governance. And let's, you know, if there's some country out there that's un- underdeveloped, we got to go in there and, ch- and train their bureaucrats in the proper way to rule out corruption and da, 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 like. Right. So that that's, are, is, are you saying, oh no, wow, they're just totally missing the boat. It's more like they need a, a real strict bill of rights or something or go ahead. Tough questions. Uh, I'll start with the I'll start with the more academic one first, and then move into the the policy stuff after that, if that's okay. Sure. So on the historical development, or excuse me, the historical study of the wealth and poverty of nations, right? The ultimate thing that we as economists are supposed to do. Uh, if we can't explain why some countries are rich and some countries are poor, we're we're all wasting our time here. That's the ball game. Mm-hmm. So in terms of that conversation, it's absolutely historically correct to note that economic growth did not take off until at least a couple centuries after the construction of strong, centralized, coherent states. That's a brute historical fact. We're not disputing that. What we dispute is the explanation. Is it the case that building those states caused economic growth, or is something else going on that causes economic growth, and out of that falls state capacity? That's a really important question to answer. Right? Because again, if you build state capacity, you can use that wisely to promote good economic outcomes for everybody. Or if you and your cronies are the ones in charge of running the state, you can use the state capacity to enrich yourselves at the expense of everybody else, in which case your country will stay poor. So now all of a sudden, what we have to explain has changed significantly. We should no longer be focusing on state capacity per se. We should be focusing on those other features of institutions both in formal government and in informal places like civil society, that can constrain the state and sort of take the predatory avenues of approach off the off the menu of options, so to speak. Getting back to the productive, the protective, and the uh, predatory state, the state wants to be predatory. Something has to happen to make it be product- productive and protective. Whatever is doing that, whatever is veering the state away from predation and towards protection and production cannot itself be state capacity. It has to be something else doing the explanation. And to the extent that we want to explain the wealth of nations, we have to find that something else. That something else is the ballgame. State capacity by itself is nothing more than institutional morphology. Way back in the Middle Ages, governance institutions were really decentralized. Now they're really centralized. Okay, 
You're just describing what governance institutions look like. That's not the same as doing the work of explaining why all of a sudden these states, which had centralized power to a degree not seen since the Roman Empire, why all of a sudden they started doing good things. Right? If you look for humanity's economic record, good governance is not on the menu for most people most of the time. What we're enjoying right now is unprecedented, and we need to explain it. You can't explain it by just saying, oh, states started doing good stuff. The question is why? It can't be state capacity that's doing the constraining and pushing us towards the good outcomes away from the bad outcomes. Something else has to be doing the work. And that's what we need to be focusing on for the purposes of this research project. Okay. And now I've forgotten what your other question was. I apologize. Uh, More like policy advice. So there's some, you know, poor country that's got corrupt officials and there's no rule of law and the roads aren't getting built and they're, you know, and they, they come to you and a bunch of other economists and say, help us out guys. So the state capacity people are saying, Oh, well, the problem is, you I mean, you can't even raise taxes here. Let me show you how you survey everybody and get their, uh, give them social security numbers and get right. direct access to their checking accounts. I mean, how are you going to build a road if you can't even tax them? And right. what are you, what are you going to say? Like, well, the problem yeah, thank is. You. Thank you for reminding yeah. me about that. <laughs> so economists have this unfortunate habit of doing their theoretical and applied work as if they're about to give advice to a benevolent despot. Mm-hmm. Right. So the idea is, well, if you have weak state capacity, build strong state capacity, get good bureaucrats in place. You know, we're going to show you how to maintain an efficient taxation system. All the things that you just talked about. If Vincent and I are right, that's absolutely not going to work because it's ultimately epiphenomenal. The problems are much, much deeper than that. If you cannot credibly commit to using state capacity wisely, it's probably a bad idea to be building it in the first place. Now, I'll be completely honest. We don't actually have a very good explanation, neither Vincent and I nor economists in general, mm-hmm. about how you actually get good institutions. Right. And so the question is about policy advice, about institutional transplantation. Right. It would be wonderful if we could just write down the Bill of Rights and then hand it to people and then say, here, do this. And then they could do that. Right. But you can probably see that explanations like that have the exact same problem as explanations for why poor countries are poor from 30, 40, 50 years ago. Right. Back then it was all about, oh, they don't have enough capital per worker. So what do we do? We crank up foreign aid and we give them more capital per worker. Well, of course, it doesn't last. It depreciates. It goes away. It gets misused because of corruption. Why doesn't it last? Because it's not sustainable. They don't have the institutions to put it to work. Likewise, I would say a lot of poor countries do not have the institutions to make state capacity work very well. It's just not within the institutional possibilities frontier. And trying to build state capacity where it can't really exist, and even if it does exist, it's going to be used badly to do really, really bad things to that state's citizens. It's probably least bad to not build state capacity, right? I'm a big fan of first do no harm in the social sciences. Mm -hmm. Okay, so is it a fair implication of your position that to say, especially if what you're doing is giving me all these cases right now of corrupt states where they're doing, they're not doing the rule of law. And that's not, that's such an antiseptic phrase. I mean, that's almost like saying they're practicing injustice at gunpoint, to say they're not enforcing the rule of law. So th- those would be the, the least government, the last governments in the world you would want to empower, right? That would be my intuition, yeah. Uh-huh. Given that these places are frequently very corrupt and conflict prone, I think it would be very worrisome and dangerous to have one of those factions just all of a sudden have overwhelming force. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's this whole debate about when is the stationary bandit worse than the roving bandits, Right. When is a single state worse than a bunch of petty warlords? And don't get me wrong, the situation in many third world countries, many poor countries in the world today is is tragic. It's really, really bad. And we should be sad and we should be concerned with it. And I'm not saying that this should not occupy our attention. I'm saying that if we mistakenly think that state capacity is the cure to poverty rather than something epiphenomenal, we, embra- we risk embracing a cure that's worse than the disease. Okay, right? I think, about, think about the, what would happen mm-hmm. if in a situation where a country is terrorized by roving bandits, all of a sudden you gave them like the means to do even more, not only to them, but to their neighbors. Right? That's scary. Right. I would be more worried by that scenario. Yeah, exactly. And that, that's, we keep mentioning it. So folks, I'll link it again, bobmurphyshow.com slash 122, Ben Powell's article on this. It's, it's good stuff that with the Somalia stuff, 
Ben made the point, I'm paraphrasing, of course, that yes, obviously I would rather live in the United States with its government than live in Somalia when it didn't have a government, right. or a, a state, right. I should say, be clearer. But that's a different claim from saying, would you rather live in Somalia when it had its previous political ruler in force versus when that regime collapsed and they had, quote, anarchy? Right. That actually Ben showed that there were several measures by which as bad as it was, it was better under anarchy. And that's because their previous state was really bad. Yes. And that's the thing is people are comparing statelessness to areas with relatively benign states. And that's, Perfect. you know, yeah, compare it to North Korea. And then a lot of people would choose Somalia in a heartbeat. It's another case of the Nirvana, uh, Nirvana fallacy. Mm-hmm. You can get all sorts of results when you start selectively ignoring constraints. I would love it if a well-functioning state was within Somalia's institutional possibility set. I would love it if they could construct a coherent government about as good as the United States government. Like life would be phenomenal compared to what it is now if that's the case. But that's just not in the cards, right? Given the constraints they face, like you said, the choice is not between a well-behaved, protective, productive state and anarchy. The choice is between a predatory state or anarchy. And so Ben Powell has this great article on Somalia, like you talked about. Uh, I think it's co-authored with Alex Noraste at the Cato Institute, but you'll have to double check me on okay. that. Pete Leeson. It's partly I didn't want to have to mispronounce too. his last name. Sorry? So, I, I was joking. I said it's partly because I didn't want to mispronounce his last name, so that's why I just said Ben Powell. But All right, I've, I've heard it. Uh, I've heard his research pronounced and discussed so many times that uh, – and I think I've got it down. Uh, apologies, Alex. I love your stuff, and I, I apologize if I got your name wrong. But uh, the bottom line is when you compare stateless Somalia to Somalia with the state, on pretty much every development indicator, Somalia under anarchy has gotten better for the people who actually live there. Mm-hmm. I think the only metric on which it's unambiguously worse is formal years of schooling, because you no longer have this uber-subsidized by international aid organization schooling structure. But for a country as with Somalia's current level of per capita income, spending 12 years in school is probably not a great idea for the modal child anyway. Right? Mm-hmm. That's just not something that they can quote-unquote afford at their given level of wealth and income. So even the one thing that's unambiguously worse, with worse in, well, worse in quotes, is itself, I think, a reversion to the actual constraints that are driving the political and economic process. Mm-hmm. So the takeaway is that only if you ignore the relevant counterfactual do you think that the solution to Somalia's problems is, oh, we'll just go in and we'll build a state with high state capacity. Right. That just completely ignores the constraints that are actually governing the scenario. And economists, more than anybody else, are supposed to be realistic about the constraints that we face which is why this is even more tragic. Let me throw this at you because it's, it's, I guess, somewhat related. When people would ask me, you know, oh, because I've written theoretical stuff on, you know, market anarchy and how could, there, how could you have law enforcement and court systems and things, property rights, and even military defense without former political coercive institution. And I would do my stuff. And then people say, oh, well, how can we look around? I don't see that anywhere, Murphy. When I look around, especially if I just look at areas where there's statelessness, they're all places I don't want to live. So why is that? And so one thing I would would say is, again, sort of like you're seeing a selection bias, that right now, the way the world is, all of the places that are stateless are in areas where the residents think it's a good thing to have a state, other things equal. And so the only reason they don't have one is either because there was like a natural disaster, right? So if you go look at a place where there was just a huge earthquake or something and their government institutions collapsed, you know, that's, that's hardly a fair test to say, hey, does this look like a place I want to live if like there was a major calamity or if there was a civil war or you know things like that? And the reason the government collapsed was because of war. We're clearly looking around at that point. It's not going to look like a place you want to live. There aren't any areas that became stateless because everybody read Murray Rothbard and was like, oh, wow, why don't we just have voluntary institutions because the non-aggression yeah. principle. So- I understand it's still, you know, the burden of proof perhaps is on us to make a more compelling case, but nonetheless, that is what I think happens in the real world and why I can't point to some nice stateless area is because the reason right now for any, any sample you can pick of a stateless society, it's not there 
because the people just went there ideologically. It's, it's there because of some calamity. Right. I think that's mostly right. Uh, the only, the only qualifier I would add is that a lot of those places never had fully formed cohesive central states, right? They're always just sort of teetering on the edge and the natural disaster or the civil war or whatever tipped them over. Mm-hmm. So a lot of countries that unfortunately are poor and have been poor decades, you know, going back to the end of the Second World War, it's never been the case that they've been able to construct a state like the United States has or Great Britain has or the Nordic democracies have. Again, it's just not within the production possibilities frontier, institutional possibilities frontier, rather. Mm. When you look at the range of governance arrangements that are actually feasible, uh, the more decentralized, fragmented things that have been more traditional in such societies are probably the best that they can do for now. Yeah. And another interesting thing is, oh, shoot, I forget who it was. Oh, it was Mark Cuban. So I don't even know how this happened, but on Twitter, Mark Cuban got into an argument with like Eric July and some other ANCAPs. And, and he was like astonished that they, you know, were advocating, you know, anarcho-capitalism. And he had some throwaway line like, well, geez, I mean, under, you know, if you didn't have, if you had private militaries, just the company with the biggest military would just take over. So that won't work. So I retweeted that and said, right. And by the same token, you can't have state run militaries because then the state with the biggest military would just take over. So clearly that, and it's the same logic. And it's, and I think that that happens a lot in this, these arguments where yes, I can give, in other words, I can give my arguments for why like warlords wouldn't take over wherever in a nice society and there's checks and balances. And if one company Mm -hmm. got to, and sure that doesn't prove it. But what's interesting is the people who then come up with a scenario will know if the population were such and such, or if, enough people with no morals banded together with their weaponry, blah, blah, blah. It's like, okay, fine. You're right. But by the same token, having an election every four years wouldn't take that same group of people and make them be, you know, civil and treat each other with respect. Like if, in other words, they're chopping each other's heads off under anarchy, under statelessness. Why the fact that they have a constitution and, you know, voting every four years in a bicameral legislature that they would, you know, oh, we, well, we wouldn't use violence now. I mean, th- that's kind of the the mismatch. Like, you're, so I think it's yeah. echoing your point that it's you got to have the same group of people in mind. If one type of institution wouldn't work, us trying to give them, you know, make them the fifty first state, that's not going to work either. Right. Yeah. There's all sorts of problems with institutional transplant, and we've known that in development economics and political economy for a long time. Uh, the really interesting thing about this conversation that we've sort of had since the turn of the 20th, 21st century is that we're pretty confident at stating what doesn't work and we're much less confident at stating what does work. So we know that giving poor countries capital won't help. We know that handing them a copy of the United States Constitution and saying, here, do this, that's not going to do much help. Mm -hmm. Uh, Getting back to your other point about, I didn't see this particular tweet by Mark Cuban, but the line about how you know, the, the entity with the largest military is just going to end up conquering everything. That's pretty much how modern states came to be, right? The entities right, with right. the largest mm-hmm. militaries were able to preserve their independence and autonomy. Now, of course, there's a limit to even that, right? So to start, there are serious economies of scale and the use of force, which is why all that centralization and stuff is a good thing. But eventually, the marginal cost for additional predation gets so steep that you just your state doesn't grow anymore. There is such a thing as a steady state for states. So it's not like the fact that we're selecting for centralized, coherent, hierarchical states means that we're like tending towards one world government. There is a natural stopping point. So the conservative listener hearing the conversation thus far, he might have been troubled by some of my remarks, but your stuff would be great. And he goes, right. And, this is, and that's why when I hear about anarchism, I just know that's that's a crazy philosophy that, you know, can't possibly be a good idea. And yet, I now want to pivot and refer to one of your earlier articles. This was published in March 12th, 2019, the title of which was Why True Conservatism Means Anarchy. Yeah. So explain that and then, well, go ahead and explain that. Sure. So philosophically, in terms of politics, I am an anarchist in the sense that I don't really think there's any justification for the idea of political authority. I don't think there's any such thing as a right to obey the state. And I largely think having an entity with a monopoly on the use of force is a bad idea for similar reasons why I think monopolies in other areas of economics are bad. But I'm also very sympathetic to philosophical conservatism, at least the Anglo-American strain of conservatism, guys like 
uh, Edmund Burke and Alexis de Tocqueville, Lord Acton in more contemporary times, F.A. Hayek, not the sort of continental style uh, thrown in an altar counter-revolution conservatism, so Anglo-American conservatism. And I wrote the article that you're talking about now because when I look at the history of modern states, right, since the Peace of Westphalia in the mid of, middle of the 17th century, states have been on the forefront of destroying the sort of informal institutions that I think are very, very important for human flourishing. Maybe destroying is, is too strong a word. Crowding out, we'll say. So if you're someone who thinks that civil society is very important and perhaps the most important aspect of society, even more important than both markets or states, uh, which is a claim that I would, I would feel comfortable endorsing, you want there to be a rich associational life on the part of citizens because you want them to be able to pursue individual and group flourishing within these voluntary institutions of civilist society because we're not meant to just be isolated individuals. And for the record, classical liberals and conservatives have never made the kind of atomistic arguments that many of our detractors say that we have. We've always believed that uh, it takes a village, right? We just don't think that because it takes a village, you need a guy with a gun to point it at you and say, do what I tell you to for your own good. So when I look at the history of state developments, I see states as being very hostile to ways of life and patterns of living that I think help human beings become most fully themselves. And I'm basically at this point skeptical that we can trust the state to refrain from trampling on the good, beautiful, and true things in life. And so I think that conservatives, especially now, uh, post-2016, you have this sort of national conservatism movement where you have people who identify as conservatives sort of making their peace with a large, vigorous, centralized state that does a lot and actively intervenes in people's lives, I think that's deeply misguided. I think that those conservatives are sowing the seeds for their own destruction, and that for the sake of preserving things that we care about, the church, I'm a Christian, I care deeply about the church, uh, local voluntary institutions, civic organizations, fraternities, educational institutions, etc., all these things that hold society together and give our lives meaning I don't see that the state is anything but opposed to many of those things now. And that deeply worries me. So I'm trying to convince conservatives, don't get on like the don't get on the pro-big government bandwagon just because you guys have lost in the past, right? Don't make your peace with it. You were more right when you were skeptical of all this stuff. Okay. So here I'm not setting you like I'm I'm genuinely not sure what what your answer is gonna be. So this is like not just a canned question. All right, here we go. Couldn't the conservatives say, ah, I understand what you mean. And you're right. I am concerned about the growth of government. I certainly see what they're doing, you know, fighting the church and trying to break down the traditional family and da, 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 da. And, you know, crazy regulations. And you got people regulating sodas at this point. Oh. But you know what? I read Geloso and Salter and they told me you need to have a strong state. Otherwise you get conquered. So when you're talking about preserving the things we care about, duh, we need a strong state. So right. how can, what do you mean you're telling me I need to be an anarchist? That's the tough selling point, right? So I think <laughs> that that article, that article uh -huh. was mostly written to get people to adopt a certain philosophical position to the state. Mm -hmm. But I think that anarchy and voluntary institutions should be the ideal, even and perhaps even especially for people of conservative dispositions. That does not mean that I believe in actively undermining the state. I am not a revolutionary. But I am not in any way, shape, or form supporting armed resistance to any relatively well-behaved Western government. Instead, I think it's important that we get the ideal right. right. For a lot of conservatives, it's becoming the case that the ideal is a strong, active, micromanaging state that actively pushes people towards whatever our conception of the common good is. I think that that ideal is not only wrong, but dangerous. We'll do a better job at getting the kind of society that we want if we take a more, uh, it's ironic that I'm citing this person since he was anything but a conservative, uh, a Thomas Paine perspective on the state, whereas at best a necessary evil, maybe we've got to put up with it, but we should never accept it as a positive good, right? Even if you never achieve your ideal, what your ideal is matters because it sets the direction in which you try and implement your reforms. Uh, it's the utopian vision against which you juxtapose actually existing institutions and say, okay, what differences do we, do we see and how do we make this better? So I'm really trying to caution conservatives from adopting the paternal state as their normative vision. 
Instead, I think they should adopt the voluntary society as their normative vision. Mm-hmm. That would be my answer to that. Okay, but why didn't you write an article why true conservatism means the night watchman state? I'm a little bit skeptical of minarchism just because historically, again, I don't think it's a stable equilibrium. Mm-hmm. You know, once upon a time in American history, we had something approximating the night watchman state. Now we don't. I think that there are reasons for that that are baked into the political process. On that point, can I I just say, Alex, a minute ago when you said we can't just hand the U.S. Constitution like to people in the Middle East and expect it to work. I was right. You can't even hand it to the colonists, you know, the original 13 colonists. They won't work there either. Surprise. Right. Yeah, that's that's the tough thing. And so I want to I have absolutely no problems with people for whom the minimal state or the night watchman state is, you know, the utopian vision. That's fine. I would just push people to be a little bit more radical. I really do think that a voluntary society with a minimal, uh, with minimal institutionalized coercion is not only desirable, it's also feasible. I actually think anarcho-capitalism can work. And I think that there are ways of resisting the state conquest problem that do not necessarily mean we have to build our own state. Just historically, it's worked out that way so far. Now, I realize that that's pie in the sky. I realize that the institutions that we have do not look like that. They're not going to look like that for the foreseeable future. And most importantly, to respect the human dignity and personhood of people with whom we disagree, we have to persuade them, right? It's simply no longer the case that liberty is the default option in the imagination and minds of men anymore. And so mm-hmm. there are two ways you can go with that, right? You can sort of go a revolutionary way where we're basically say to hell with it, flip the table, we're going to make it happen anyway. Or you can go more slow and steady, no, we're going to actually try and persuade people work within the highly imperfect institutions that we have to make them slightly less bad at the margin way. And based on my reading at how most revolutions work out, spoiler alert, they almost always go really, really, really bad. Uh, Option two is is the way that we want to go. So I would summarize my position as radical vision, modestly pursued. Okay. So let me, let me just push you with one last one then. Sure. If I understand you, you're saying it's true that historically people needed a strong state to make their society long lasting. They were either to the extent that they became wealthy and hence a target. They needed a strong state. Otherwise they either got absorbed by somebody else. Well, or they turned, they got their own strong state, but you're saying that need not be the case. This is historically what happened, but you're saying, actually, I do think a voluntary society, particularly the more serious its members were committed to that ideal could come up with, voluntary mechanisms of repelling foreign invasion and so on, even though you're admitting on a large scale that never happened yet historically. Yeah, I would say it's really, really hard, but possible. And it requires not only a radical reimagining of what we consider acceptable institutions, it would require a lot of work on the part of of citizens, such a voluntary society, because you would have to be spending a lot of your time training and practicing and doing these things to sort of resist conquest. And that would take away from uh, engaging in the division of labor and making more money, for example. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's, that's hard, right? I like doing it too. I like consuming. What can I say? I like, I like engaging in the division of labor and not thinking too hard about these things and not engaging in the political process too much. But at the same time, I recognize that a truly self-governing society requires us to not eschew our duties of citizenship. And so there, there would have to be a host of formal and informal institutions in which people engage to have a truly voluntary society that A, worked, B, attained uh, economic flourishing, made its, its residents wealthy, and C, was also able to resist conquest. I think we know a lot more now about things like civil disobedience, guerrilla warfare, violent and nonviolent resistance methods, that if you already had a voluntary society, it would not necessarily be conquered. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that that's still an ideal that should animate us and inspire us. Uh, so just, instead in, just of, in case, just yeah. in case it wasn't clear, again, I am in no way advocating any sort of armed resistance to actually existing states. Revolution's right. bad. Revolution's very bad. Right. Okay. So in your ideal society, then let's like the parents say, okay, kids, I know you want to go to your job and earn some income, but we got to go watch Red Dawn again. Come on. <laughs> come on. It's, <laughs> it's a public good. It needs to be yeah. subsidized. You got to eat your broccoli, do your pushups and watch Red Dawn. Okay. Yep. All right. Well, on that note, why don't we wrap up? So uh, everyone, my guest has been Alex Salter of Texas Tech University and the Free Market Institute there. Alex, thanks so much for your time. 
Thank you very much, Bob. I'll just say one more thing. Uh, all of my public writings, including the writings that we've discussed in this podcast, are available at my website, www.awsalter.com. And I'm also on Twitter, at Alex W. Salter. So if you're ever interested in you know, hearing what a name 280-character thing I have on my mind on any given day, please follow me. Okay, great. Thanks. And folks, in case you missed that, the links will all be at bobmurphyshow.com slash 122, as well as links to the particular things we discussed. All right. Thanks, Alex. And tell everyone at the FMI I said hi. Thanks so much, Bob. I had a lot of fun. Me too. So long. Take care. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.